0: Again, if you're joining us online, great to have you uh, be a part of our service as well. And, you know, if you're joining us, uh, if you're just joining us, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we have been looking through the book of Hebrews, and we've been talking about lordship. And Hebrews is one of my favorite books, and one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite books is because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, And, and the writer of Hebrews is unashamed in his willingness to exalt Jesus over everyone and everything. And he attacks it from every single angle. And so we have been doing that. And so today, um, we're going to look at, at, you know, again, the whole series is is everyday lordship, is what we're calling it. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to spend a little time in verses 1 through 12, but we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. So buckle up. Uh, we We have a journey to go through I've got a lot to say today, so here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard, what was was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. And so I want to focus in, really, right now on on a couple of words. And those couple of words are, let us be careful. You know, again, we usually use what's, what's, if you're joining us, you know, the New International Version is the version of the Bible we tend to use when we, we preach or do lessons. And, you know, I love the, Bible, love the New International Version. It's got an eighth grade reading level, so it's very accessible to folks, right? But there are times where the New Translation does not do things justice. This is one of those times. And so when you think about this statement, again, the writer of Hebrews here, he's talking about the wilderness wanderings, right, particularly Numbers chapter 14. And he's talking about how at that moment, that moment changed their destiny, Because one moment they were ready to head into the promised land, they were on the verge of entering the promised land, and then after that moment, they wandered for 40 years, and they were not able to go in, those who rebelled. It was a defining moment, a life-altering moment. And so when you look at this, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, looking at their life, looking at, at their response, we should have a response ourselves. And the NIV translates that as, let us be careful. But I don't think it does it justice because it's not quite the same when you look in the original language. The, the, the original language here says something a little bit, just a little bit different. And so there you can see on the screen you've got the NIV version in verse 4. Then down in uh, the second one is the, R, uh, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, which I think does better. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear. Let us fear. I want you to think about that for a moment because it says here, you know, that we should respond when we think about their choices and what happened to them and what they went through and how they ended up where they were, our response should be to fear. And I want, I want us to think about that for a moment because, again, God's rest is not a guarantee. Now, God's promise of rest is a guarantee. But entering the rest its not a guarantee. We have choices. We love our choices. In America, we love our choices. Right? We do. And so the Israelites in the desert could not enter that rest. And I understand that that's not just the physical boundaries of Canaan, but, but they couldn't enter the rest because of the choices that they made, not because God could not deliver on his promise, but they made a choice. And so this passage is challenging. You don't realize it yet, but this passage is challenging because it represents the truth of lordship in a way that we, I guarantee you, we don't like. And the reason why I say that is because here the writer actually tells us what we should feel. And we don't like that. It's one of the things that has been consistent as I've worked in the ministry for over 30 years. When you sit with someone, you talk about what's right or wrong, hey, you know what? We may not always agree, but amen. We're like, praise the Lord. You talk about what we should do, you know, again, may not always agree, but praise the Lord. You talk about how I should feel, nope. There is no praising of the Lord at that moment. What I feel is what I feel. Don't talk to me about what I feel. Don't try to control what I feel. Don't comment on what I feel. Don't judge what I feel. Right? And yet here the writer says, no, you should fear. That's the right response. It's The right response. So we don't like people telling us, but and, imagine, and I imagine the people that the Hebrew writer is talking to, they did not like this either. But fear is the proper response that you and I should have when we think about what happened to those in the desert and what our response should be if we are in the same space that they are in. Our response should be fear. So why does the writer... Say to his audience, let us fear. Well, we have to remember what he's working with, right? Remember who he's writing to and what they're struggling with, right? They're not impressed with Jesus because they think, well, if you compare Jesus to some of our great cultural heroes like Moses or like Abraham, then I don't know. Jesus doesn't seem as, imp- as impressive. I mean, did Jesus take all of our people and rescue them from Egypt and bring them to the promised land? Jesus didn't do that, right? And so they're thinking backwards, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're, co- they're comparing him in a way that, that, as Maurice mentioned last week, as they look, Jesus is not quite as impressive. And you say, well, angels, right? Because they, the writer talks about angels, that Jesus is greater. And he says, surely Jesus isn't greater than angels. And yet he is. So this is what they're struggling with. They're struggling with, with that. They're struggling with meeting together. It's difficult. For whatever reason, it was difficult for them. They had a hard time, and some had got into the habit of not meeting together. That's what he's, that they're wrestling with. They're tempted to throw away their confidence because they were facing legitimate challenges that were heart-rending and difficult. But as a result of those challenges, They wanted to just let go of their confidence and walk away. They were struggling with falling away. They were struggling with drifting. That's who the writer's talking to. And so the the writer says, look, here's the issue. You're struggling with something different, perhaps, but it leads you to the same place that those Israelites in the desert were led to. And so when you're in that space, thinking about they went through and the outcome, you should be afraid. You should be afraid. That's the appropriate response when we find ourselves not inside of what God's clear will is. If we find ourselves struggling with the things that the Israelites in that desert scenario were struggling with, or with what the writer here in Hebrews is talking about, his audience, what they're struggling with, if you and I are struggling with that, we should fear. We should fear. So the question is, how do we keep from repeating history? Because here's the reality you and I are going to repeat history or we're going to change it. Right? And so, the trajectory that we're on right now, take a moment and think about the trajectory of your life and your faith right now, and your closeness to God and your connection to other disciples, and your desire to do what God wants you to do. When you think about the trajectory you're on, I'm not talking about any single moment, right? I'm talking about where you see that you are headed. And when you're honest with yourself, are you headed more to where the Israelites were headed? Or are you headed away from that, toward God, toward the rest that God promises? And so, how do we keep from repeating history? There are three things that I want to talk about today that I can see in that desert uh, scenario that I want to leave us with. And, and so we're going to look at a couple of things, primarily here in Numbers 13 and 14. Again, if you're, uh, if you're watching online, we're going to be spending most of our time in Numbers 13 and 14. And first, I'd like to talk about the power of choice and the reality of consequence. You know, I love parenting. I love being a dad. And one of the things that that I remember as my kids were growing up, and I'm sure they remember, was I believed in choices. And I believed in consequences. And I believed that the best way that you could understand choice was to understand consequence. (laughs) Right? And, you know, here, the writer of Hebrews, he's looking back in Israel's history. And he looks back at this moment in in Numbers 13 and 14, where God makes the decision that the Israelites would not go, that those who have grumbled, those who complained and rebelled against them, that they would not be allowed to go, that they were actually going to wander for 40 years in the desert. So take a look over in Numbers chapter 14, and we're going to look at verse 20. It's on your screen now. And this is just the section. Again, I encourage you to go back and read. Read in context, chapters 13 and 14. We don't have time today, but the context matters. Up to this point, you know, again, they had sent out spies to spy out the land and understand what, what, what the land was like. And to see if the, if the land was good or bad, what kind of fruit was there, and things like that. And so those 12 men, one representative of each tribe, they went out and they did exactly what they were asked to do. They find that they come back, and yet their report is discouraging. The majority of those men decided after they had been there, that they had saw it themselves, that there was no way. There was no way we could take the promised land. And so the people get discouraged and they decide we should point another leader and we're to go back to Egypt where it was safe. And at that point, God says, no. And so here we, we in, in verse 20, this is kind of the tail end of that conversation where, where God has decided, and, and now Moses is talking to him. And one of the things that Moses asks God to do is forgive the people. And so we pick up in verse 20 where it says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Now that's sobering. You know, Numbers 14 represents a choice, right? When the Israelites were on the edge of the promised land, they had to make a choice as to whether they were going to go in and face the challenges. They were going to face people that were larger than, than they were, better armed more fortified. Some of them were going to die. This was a tough choice either way they went. Right? I'm not trying to paint the choice of of staying or leaving as better. Both of these choices were were difficult, and there were consequences, grave consequences either way they went. God was going to be with them, and they were going to take the promised land, but it it was going to take a long time. God eventually says, you know, when you go start reading in the book of Joshua, And you see in the book of Judges, right, that that they take parts of the promised land. And God says, I'm not going to drive everyone out at once. And so this wasn't a three-day excursion. This was a year-after-year excursion. This was going to take a long time. And as I said, people were going to die. And so the choice to walk in or stay out, both of those choices were difficult, and there were no easy answers. But the Israelites heard what God called them to do. And they weighed the risks. They were not victims at that moment. And I want you to think about that. Do you feel sorry for the Israelites at that moment? Right? Think about that a moment. Because they weren't victims. They weighed the risks. They made decisions on the perspectives and the recommendations of the people who they sent to scout out that land. And they relied on the faith of the explorers. And when there was a conflict, they went with the majority sentiment. That's how they chose. They outsourced their faith to the experts. Can you fault them? Can you blame them for the process they took and decision that they rove at? And so what's what's sobering is that their decision does not result in immediate death. That's perhaps to me the most sobering thing about this, because the day after they made that decision, nothing really changed for the most of the people, for the majority. Because some decided, oh no, we made a big mistake, we're going to go up there and try to fight our way in now, we're sorry, our bad, we're going to go up now and do what we said, we... too late. Most of those folks died right there. But for the majority of the people, nothing changed. Manna kept falling from the sky, they kept kept doing what they did the day before, but, but now the difference was God continued to bless them, but they wandered and waited for the end for 40 years. And before that day, the day before, they had direction, they had focus, they had purpose, they had, they had all you know, uh, these, these great visions of what they could do and become, and then the day after, they were waiting for the end. And so life consisted of making themselves as comfortable as they could, for whatever rest of the life that they had. And so somewhere between that moment and 40 years, everybody died. Everybody died. And it wasn't, you know, some, some intense tragedy or some wild animal or being poisoned. It was, no, you were just going to spend the rest of your life wandering. Wandering. And so I want you to ask yourself, are, are, are we outsourcing our faith in any way, Is there any way that you and I are outsourcing, that we're, we're giving our faith to someone else to decide what we're going to do? Because that's a dangerous place to be in, right? Are we basing our decisions on what the majority of people that we respect think are right, right? Or the opinions of people that, that, that we are related to or that we admire, are, are, we, are we outsourcing our faith to them? Because no matter who or what you give the power of that choice to, it's still your choice. It's still, our cho- it's still our choice. The second thing here is we perform what we practice. And I, and I can't stress enough that the day-to-day things that you and I do, man, they make a huge difference. Maybe not day-to-day, but in the big moments that truly matter. right? Numbers, numbers 13 and 14, that's a huge moment. That's a life-altering moment. Thank God we don't have a life-altering moment every day. But the reality is, what we practice tends to be how we perform. And so when you look, man, this is intense to me. In, in verse 22, this is something I've, you know, as much as I've read this over the years, I didn't notice this. And so in verse 22, Numbers uh, chapter 14, it says, Not one of those who saw my glory in the signs that, uh, here we go, Numbers 14, verse 22 Not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. And so, you know, again, we've talked about this. I mean, you see verse 28. We'll get there in a minute on screen. But we've talked about this before, where we've made the point that everything that the Israelites went through, every challenge, when they would... Go to somewhere. There's no water. They'd go to somewhere and the water was bitter. Or they'd go somewhere and they needed food. Each one of those situations was an opportunity for them to grow in their faith and their conviction, right? That was the testing for them and the training that God provided, so that they would be able to grow and 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 be prepared for a Numbers thirteen and fourteen moment. And so we've talked about that, building spiritual resiliency and faith. But as you know, their typical response was grumbling, complaining, and arguing with Moses, Moses and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, and God. You know, if that was the variety of the argument. That was all there was. And so, you know, the miracles of that moment, particular thing that God did, it doesn't translate, it didn't translate to the next challenge in their lives. And so they see, for example, that 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 God does an amazing miracle, world-class miracle, no one's ever seen before, you know, pushes the waters of the Red Sea aside so they can walk on dry land across. No one's ever seen that before. No one ever seen that since. And yet, three days later, they're like, and we're sick of this. What's, where's the water? There's no water. You know, I, had, I had talked to the guys about how it's like Mark 6 and Mark 8 where the disciples saw Jesus feed 5,000 people and they saw him feed 4,000 people and then they're in the boat and they don't have bread and they're like, man, this must be because we have no bread. And I can imagine Jesus is saying to them, haven't you just seen me feed 10,000 people and you're talking about not having any bread? Come close so that I can kill you, Right. <laughs> But the Israelites didn't have that mechanism. Their thought was, God did this miracle then, but we're not sure that he's with us. God did this miracle for us now, but will he be with us tomorrow? And so again, it was situational, not relational. And so what we have is a situation where by the time you reach Numbers 14, the people were absolutely successful in what they practiced. They were absolutely successful. They had practiced faithlessness. They had practiced not trusting that God would, would, would deliver them. They were practicing that God was not among them. And by the time Numbers 14 gets there, they do it perfectly. And so we practice, how we practice is how we tend to perform. And so, in verse twenty-eight, which is why why is that on your screen? Well, because, and I'll read it. It says, "So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years or old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. If you're thinking, man, that was so harsh of God to then let them just wander." in the wilderness for 40 years. But how could God do that? that? That God somehow loses control and he decides to do an overly harsh punishment. God says, I'm just giving you what you've asked for. This is not God you know, contrives some sort of harsh, random you know, punishment fueled by a rage. No, if that happened, there'd be no more Israelites. Probably no more world. But God says, no, that's fine. You know what? This is a natural consequence. What you said all the time is, I brought you out here so that that I would kill you and your children, that you were upset with me because your children were going to die in this desert and your livestock and everything else, and you brought me out here to uh, to kill us so that we would die with our children in this desert. He says, guess what? Your children are going to be the ones that make it. And you are going to die. In the wilderness, So you will see them move on, but here you will stay. And so I want you to ask this question, right? How should God respond to us? How should he respond to us if we habitually say things like, oh Lord, it's too much to do what you've asked me to do. It's too hard, it's too much to meet together as believers and stay connected to each other. It's too difficult to change my character or let go of sinful behaviors. It's too burdensome to honor you with my finances or too much to offer the gospel to other people. What should God do? Should it be nothing? What should he do? If God's really not my priority on earth, there is no switch that's going to flip when I get to heaven. There's no switch. You know what's on the menu in heaven? You're like, milk and honey. No, no, not not that menu. (laughs) Right? What we're supposed to be doing is worshiping God for eternity. If we don't want to do that here, what do you think that's going to be like in heaven? How encouraged are you going to be? Right? People are like, I can't believe God would be so... Whatever the word, the term we we insert there, and we say that he would allow people to to, to go to hell. Yeah, but but if they don't want to worship him, going to heaven would be hell. Oh, wow. Right? Again, and I'm not doing this for effect, I'm just asking us to consider the logic of this. If I don't want to serve God, I don't want to worship him. I don't want to love him. I don't want to honor him with my life. I don't want to make him the priority. I don't want to do the things he's asked me to do. They're burdensome. They're struggling. Then going to heaven, why would would that be encouraging? And So God gives them what they ask for. So this isn't about having a better sounding response. Like if people talk to us. It's not about that, right? It's about God. It's about letting him develop in us a heart that actually is full of faith. And there's no way to do that except let God shepherd us through challenging times and to work on things that we need to grow and change in. Right? There's no way other than that to do that. You know, it's it's not that when the Israelites came to places where there was no water, that they were supposed to rejoice about that. It wasn't like they were supposed to come there and they're like, praise God, there's no water. That's not what was supposed to happen. And that's not supposed to be what happens when you and I go through our challenges. No, what's supposed to happen is we acknowledge whatever it is we're feeling about that. And then we fight to trust that God will provide, that we will allow him to to still be bigger than our challenge, bigger than what's happening around us, right? And so we work on our doubt in those moments that he is still with us, and we continue to do good. That's what we're called to do. And so every challenging moment in our lives is not equal, and praise God for that, right? But the spiritual decisions that you and I make in the smaller challenges, those are times where we are actually working and practicing, and that will influence how we tend to handle the the numbers 13 and 14 moments in our lives. The third thing here is what the writer says here in Hebrews 4 is that just hearing God's word isn't enough. It's not enough. So you see there in verse two, it says, for we have also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And that's Hebrews four, verse two. And so the the challenge is remembering that we have to combine what we hear with faith or it loses its value. And so I put James chapter two because it's another passage in our understanding of, of what, why faith is so important, right? James chapter 2, verse 17 says, In the same way faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so here's the reality. We need to hear God's word. We need to apply it. We need to put uh, faith in